Hi everyone and welcome to Anesthesia Coffee Break. I'm Lahiru and I'm Stan. And today we got a pretty special episode because we're going to talk all about urea, but also a performance tip about giving good feedback or feedback in a most productive way. So let's get started. Now the usual disclaimer, all the stuff we're talking about is just general medical information for an exam. It's really not to be used for any specific patient. So please consult your treating team for any particular issues your patient might have. Now, yeah, let's get started. Um, we're, we're out of lockdown. That's the uh, first thing I think uh, we need to celebrate. We, yeah. <laughs> we had a fantastic lunch. I'm over at Lahiru's place and I've got my cap on because <laughs> it's a beautiful spring weather in Melbourne. It's 25 degrees. Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful being just out and about now. Yeah. A bit of normality. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, how, how have you been, La? Yeah, look, you know, I've had a, I think I've had a really great week just because, you know, looking forward to lockdown ending and having things on to do this weekend. You know, the funny thing is COVID has been terrible. Lockdown has been terrible, but I've, you know, I've learned so much in terms of, you know, just churning out videos and learning how all this works. And, you know, I'll look back on this time and think, man, I learned, I learned a whole different skill set, and I'm really happy about that. And hopefully I won't even remember the pain of, you know, being locked down and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Well, I think for those who actually want to see the journey, you can actually see the trajectory, which is exponential in terms of the video of quality. Um, and one of the videos I last saw that you made was the COVID intubation video. And oh, yeah. it was like professionally done. Whereas, you know, I look back and I think about, remember that us two on a couch? <laughs> yeah. Doing anesthesia coffee break? Oh, the, the, the very first edition. Yeah. yeah. No, it'll never be released. It'll never be released. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we should make an NFT of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Be worth, worth millions. 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 <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you compare uh, what we did back then compared to what you're producing now. It's mm. just chalk and cheese, isn't it? And, th- and that makes me think I'm pretty excited to what we could be producing in, you know, a year's time, 10 years time. Yeah. Um, now you've got a performance tip for us and yeah. one that um, I think uh, relates to all of us. Absolutely. So this is something I, I did this Harvard uh, simulation course a while back and something around this exam time and just, I guess, anytime in general is uh, uh, how to give feedback well. And I think it's something we all struggle with. And I thought that it was amazing. This, this course was four days, extremely expensive. Uh, and all they did was talk, essentially all they did was tell us how to give good feedback, which is firstly phenomenal in itself. I didn't think that that could be a four day course full time uh, at the best of times, but they managed to make it, you know, one of the best courses, not the best course I've ever done uh, because it was, it was so interesting. Now, the premise of that, just to get into a bit, de- bit of detail is it used to be that, do you, you know, when you gave feedback to someone, you just say, yep, that was wrong. This is what you do. So that was debriefing with judgment. Uh, and then we thought, oh, that's a bit harsh. We don't want to do that. That's quite accusatory. Let's go to the nicer model. And the nicer model in, in a nutshell is um, we're not going to tell you you did something wrong, but we're going to say, hey, do you think you should have done something better? And so everyone knows that you should have done something better. Uh, you know, the way you're framing it, the voice, the, you know, you, the, the participant knows that they could have done something better, but you're as a debriefer hiding it from them. Um, and so they, it's like this guessing game. Imagine that circumstance where someone doesn't give adrenaline in an arrest. Debriefing a judgment would be you didn't give adrenaline, give adrenaline next time, one milligram and, and you know, you should do, do better. Whereas debriefing with non-judgmentally would be something like, Hey, so I noticed you didn't give something. What, what was that? And that's also got its problems because you're not being transparent. 
And so debriefing with good judgment was to be very honest about the situation. I love the fact that it's on a premise of honesty and a premise of we expect the best of you. So it's saying, look, I noticed that you didn't give adrenaline um, in the, you know, the, after the second shock. That's something that the guidelines say. And it's something I normally would do. Uh, what were you thinking there? So what we're doing is we're stating an observation, which is a fact, what I think happened. So what my frame of reference is, uh, and, you know, I think it should have been done. It's in the guidelines. What are your thoughts? And then exploring your thoughts. And the reason why this works so well is you're being honest about what you saw. It's a fact. You're being honest about what you think should have been done and what the framework is or your frame of references. And then you, you're genuinely curious and interested because you assume that the participant wasn't acting mal maliciously or badly they probably had something that meant that they didn't do something. And a lot of the times you'll use this framework and go, and you'll find out something that the, the, the trainee or the participant would have said something like, oh, I thought someone else gave adrenaline or, oh, look, I wasn't aware. I thought he was on the first shock, not the second shock. Or I thought he was PEA. So we didn't give it on the second rhythm check. There's always some kind of reason. And that reason is far more interesting to go into than just saying you should have given adrenaline. Now, this is all on the premise that you have complete or some level of rapport and understanding. And so in these courses, you spend a lot of time exploring this basic assumption, which is, uh, you know, we believe that everyone here is intelligent, capable, and wants to do their best. And that's how we're going to see everything. Whether you do something good or bad, we don't care. We just believe that you're really good people and we're trying to improve all of our practice here. And because you have that trust and rapport and understanding, and it's just a nice environment, it means that when I explore this, you're not going to feel persecuted because you trust that I trust the best of you and believe the best in you. And so that's, that's uh, kind of my performance tip is I think it's, it was just a phenomenally interesting framework to learn. And it's one I, I try to use as much as possible in daily life, as well as in medicine. And I think that framework, we should talk about um, the premise of it, where everyone is intelligent, capable, and wants to do their best. Mm. It's similar to how uh, trainees feel as well when they are doing their practice exams or practice fibers. Um, and us as examiners, um, we should view them in that paradigm that they're intelligent, capable, and they really want to answer the questions the way that they're designed to be asked. And if it so happens that they may answer it incorrectly, um, I think it's a great framework to how you've described it in terms of stating the facts, um, being honest, stating the facts, but being non-judgmental. And, and by that, I mean, you just don't go, oh, because you didn't know this, you're yeah. going to fail. Right. And, and, and they actually call it debriefing with good judgment, because in a sense, you're not being harshly judgmental and you're not being you know, um, secretly judgmental. You're literally just being judgmental, but in a very positive, open way that's honest. So debriefing with good judgment is, I think, what they call it. Yep. No, that's good. Well, money well spent. <laughs> that's right. A whole four days, uh, is it? Four days. I don't even want to tell you how much it costs, but... And, and you've summarized it in four minutes. <laughs> there you go. That's a, that's hey, a Harvard course. Just, just um, hey, four days in four minutes. Just remember our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get on with the, with this, uh, with the short answer question. So uh, this August, September 2016 paper uh, asked to explain the physiological processes that causes oliguria in response to hypervolemic shock. What do you think about that? How did you frame this question? Uh, yeah, so going through the examiner's report, um, to actually get a pass from this question, they wanted you to actually get definitions of uh, what oliguria is and what hypervolemic shock uh, is as well. And then after that, uh, you, you had needed to have an overview of the sympathetic nervous system, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or RAS, R-A-S, uh, the antidiuretic hormone. And then 
what would get you a good mark or a or sorry, good pass or additional marks would be very detailed descriptions uh, of those above uh, concepts. So oliguria is defined as urine output less than one mil per kilo per hour in infants and less than 0.5 mils per kilo per hour in adults. And hypovolemic shock is a life-threatening condition from reduced oxygen delivery to tissues, secondary to reduced blood volume. So there are a number of causes of reduced blood volume, and they can include um, blood loss or extracellular fluid loss, which can either be hypo, iso, or hyperosmolar. And the reason why I say that is that it's it's important to know um, what type of ECF loss that is, because that will lead on to whether there's activation of ADH via the osmoreceptors. Um, we'll go through it, but the activation of ADH will, will occur when um, there's an increase in plasma osmolality, and that occurs when you get hypoosmolar ECF loss. And the most common is going to be dehydration. And just to clarify, this seems like a massive question. You've got hypovolemic shock, how it causes oliguria, but they don't even define what the hypovolemic shock is, whether it's iso, hypo, hypoosmolar. So this becomes a very complex question with multiple trees, it, doesn't it? It does, exactly. So the way that I would sort of frame it is that I would have the definitions there mm -hmm. and that I would then lead on to the causes of hypovolemic shock, which is going to be reduced blood volume from either blood loss or ECF loss, which can either be hypo, iso, or hyperosmolar. And then from there, you can talk about the mechanisms involved um, with, the, with the response. And that will include an explanation of how oliguria um, happens in, in this instance. Mm -hmm. okay. So your framework, essentially definition, and then overview of sympathetic nervous system, renal angiotensin aldosterone system, antidiuretic hormone? And it's a little bit different than that. Okay. And, and the reason for that is um, when we think about the sympathetic nervous system activation, mm -hmm. it occurs in conjunction with the activation of the renin angiotensin system. Mm -hmm. okay. and, and so when we, and I guess when we sort of think about what other mechanisms of how oliguria happens, there's, there's three things. Mm -hmm. One is that your mean arterial pressure is less than that in the autoregulation zone. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the myogenic response and the tubal glomerular feedback. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is that you get activation of your renin angiotensin aldosterone system. And then the third thing is that you get activation of ADH. So, so th those would be my three broad categories. And within those three broad categories, then you can include descriptions for each one. So let's, let's talk about the renin angiotensin uh, aldosterone system and what activates that. Mm -hmm. So the three things that activate that are going to be the activation of your sympathetic nervous system. And that is through the um, activation of your cardiopulmonary or arterial baroreceptors. Um, and that's why the sympathetic nervous system activation by itself doesn't occur solely. It occurs in conjunction with activation of renin-angiotensin, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, the second thing that activates the renin-angiotensin system is that it gets, um, there's pressure that's sensed in the afferent arterioles uh, in the kidneys. Mm -hmm. And that acts as a direct, um, direct response to increase renin. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that uh, activates renin is your macular dancer. So, your macular dancer are, are cells that uh, are at the distal tubules at the end of the loop of Henle. Mm -hmm. And they 
um, they exist sort of between the afferent and efferent arterioles, and they're able to sense sodium and flow. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, so oh, sorry, you go. yeah. So what happens is that when in in the in the event that there's hypovolemic shock, there's reduced sodium and flow um, occurring, and it's sensed by the macula densa. And what it does is it releases a couple of uh, mediators. So nitric oxide to cause um, arterial vasodilation to increase your GFR. And that is part of the, of the tubular glomerular feedback. Yeah. Okay. But the one that we want to um, understand for this one is prostaglandins. Mm-hmm. So prostaglandins released by the macula dancer um, then causes a release of uh, renin. Mm-hmm. Okay, from the juxtaglomerular uh, apparatus. Fantastic. So we've got three reasons. Decreased pressure in the cardiopulmonary and arterial baroreceptors. Yep. Decreased afferent arterial pressure, which are intrarenal. That's right. And then the macula densa effects, which is mainly prostaglandin, cyclic AMP, stimulating renin release. That's right. Okay. Correct. And so, you know, a nice sort of mnemonic for that is just SIM. Yeah. Easy. I am. Yeah. So your sympathetic nerve system from activation of your cardiopulmonary and, um, and arterial baroreceptors, I for intrarenal baroreceptors, and then um, M for macula densa. Beautiful. Renin secretion increases because of SIM. Because of SIM. SIM. Easy as that. Um, and then the second thing that we need to sort of understand is also what are the actions of renin? Mm-hmm. So renin converts angiotensinogen which is produced in the liver to angiotensin one. Angiotensin one then becomes angiotensin two via the um, uh, angiotensin converting enzyme. And those enzymes are in endothelial cells, both in the lung, well, primarily in the lung, but also in the kidney as well. Mm-hmm. Now the effects of angiotensin two. So that can be, um, there's, there's probably just five things, okay? It's sodium and water, increased sodium and water reabsorption in both the proximal and distal nephron. There is a increase in vasoconstriction, increase in your afferent arterial uh, constriction, increase in aldosterone, and there's also sympathetic your nervous system stimulation as well. All right. Um, a little mnemonic that I use, um, and, and, I've, and I've started to create this actually, I've got a little... Um, Adrenaline memories. Yeah, I've got, hey. like, I've got a little Instagram page now. Which, which, what I'll do is I'll I'll create like little stories and little mnemonics to sort of help out with these uh, memories. But the way the way that um, the story goes is that uh, um, the effects of angiotensin two is the SARS virus. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so S for sodium and water retention, yeah. A for aldosterone, mm-hmm. R for renal arterial vasoconstriction. Mm-hmm. Um, S for sympathetic nervous sympathetic nervous uh, system stimulation, and V for vasoconstriction. And what is this? These are effect, the effects of angiotensin two. Beautiful SARS. That's the effects of angiotensin two. Love it. Yeah. So that's a quick plug. So you know you'll get lots of these mnemonics in Stan's new Instagram page, uh, which is Adrenaline Memories, and essentially you'll update your stories with just all these little. Yeah, it's up- fun. Just fun little stories. Um, it's funny. Your Instagram stories will be. Updated with stories on how to remember this stuff for the first part exam, which Correct. is which is great. Yeah, um, and then finally, um, we're going to talk about, uh, or sorry, secondly, we're going to talk about ADH. So, how is ADH released? So, we previously mentioned that ADH was released from osmoreceptors, but they're also released from activation of baroreceptors as well. Mm-hmm. Now, 
so the two things can be competing because what can often happen is that let's say in someone with shock, someone with shock, your baroreceptors sense that there's low blood pressure um, and that activates your vasomotor center, which then actually activates your hypothalamus to release ADH. Now your osmoreceptors, which are in your circumventricular organs, they only activate when there's a increase in osmolality. But if you, but if you have a patient with hemorrhagic shock and you start resuscitating them with colloid or crystalloid, your osmolality actually drops. Mm. And so that actually prevents ADH from being released by the osmoreceptors. Mm. But the beauty about the um, human homeostatic mechanism is that the baroreceptor effect actually predominates mm. the osmo effect during shock. That's really fortunate because you don't want to start necessarily, it'd be harmful to immediately transfuse with blood and you necessarily you know, always go to its crystalloids in the first instance and you don't want body to not compensate. That's right. By, you know, diuresis in that moment. So Correct. that's great. Yeah. Um, and then, so the actions of ADH, they're primarily two actions. So um, the first one is via the V2 receptors and that starts to increase aquaporins in the collecting ducts, increasing water reabsorption. Um, and then the second thing, it's, it's not as the, the, the receptor is present and it only gets activated at high doses of ADH. And that's why the V1A receptor, okay? And that causes uh, direct vasoconstriction. Um, so, not, not, so remember the three things I talked about in terms of how oliguria happens. It's um, your, mean arterial, your mean arterial pressure less than your autoregulation zone. It's the renin-angiotensin aldosterone system and ADH. So the last one is your mean arterial pressure, okay? Um, and you see a graph where it's similar to, I guess, how um, it's like the myogenic response. Mm -hmm. You see that in, you know, cerebral blood flow where, where renal blood flow and GFR remains constant within um, a certain mean arterial pressure. And the one that's often quoted, you'll see in different textbooks around 70 to 80 mm -hmm. um, to 170 millimeters of mercury. Mm -hmm. Okay. So within, within that range, your GFR and renal blood flow are pretty much constant. Um, but then once you go outside those ranges, it starts dropping off in parallel with blood pressure. And the mechanism for that is both a myogenic response and also due to the tubular glomerular feedback system as well. It's okay. interesting. So almost all the autoregulation that occurs in the body is always a myogenic mechanism and often a, um, a humoral mechanism as well. But does this not have a humoral mechanism or is the uh, got so, feedback part of that. Um, so when we talk about humoral mechanisms, um, we often, we often talk about like flow metabolism coupling, mm -hmm. uh, and that, that happens, uh, cerebrally and flow metabolism coupling is not, um, autoregulation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Autoregulation is a, um, is a response by the actual smooth muscle, uh, in the, in the arterioles. Mm -hmm. And so that is, a intrinsic response. So it's so what we call a myogenic response. Um, and that's, and that's pressure related, but the special things about the kidney is that it's what adds on to this, um, what adds on to this feedback system the, or this auto regulation is also the tubular glomerular feedback system, which is the macular denser. All right. So just as a, as a bit of a thought experiment, from what you said, the baroreceptor response predominant, is predominant yeah. uh, in this um, anti-hormone response. And if you give crystalloid, you won't activate the osmoreceptors, therefore less release of these mediators. So if you were to have someone on high noradrenaline uh, to keep a, keep a relatively high map yes. and just give them crystalloid, 
would, you, would they just keep diureasing? So what you are saying is that you're able to maintain um, your barrel. I mean, you actually yeah. maintain a blood pressure. Yeah, therefore the barrel receptors aren't necessarily activated. So your barrel receptors aren't being activated, but yeah, but yeah, but you're using no adrenaline. You see, the uh-huh. thing with noradrenaline yes. is that it, it acts via the uh, beta-1 receptors in your juxtaglomerular cells um, to release renin. Yeah, okay. So, so maybe that would... Uh... So that so when you've got activation of renin, yep. that's actually going to cause you to, to be oligouric. <laughs> so that's, but that's why when patients with noradrenaline, um, you know, you, you're maintaining a certain map, yep. but not always are you getting, um, you know, that urine output that you would expect. Mm. Actually... Oh. I went to this talk by Ronaldo Bloma and you know, he's talking about urine output, chasing urine output post-op in the wards with fluid. Mm. And the fact that, you know, fluids do not protect necessarily if the uvolemic extra fluids does not protect against renal failure in a poor urine output patient. But if you are chasing urine output to give noradrenaline at a small dose in ICU or whatever, to maintain a map to then provide a urine output, that does work. Though neither of these interventions, fluid nor NORAD, still protect against renal failure. And that's a, that's a very clinical um, yeah. outcome, isn't it? That yeah, even though right. what we think in terms of chasing numbers, mm. um, it may not actually result in the positive uh, or yeah. clinical effect that we think um, it should. And you see that in actually a lot of, um, mm. uh, a, a, a lot of sort of physiological mechanisms, which seem to make sense, mm. but the outcomes don't actually correlate with that. There's still so much we don't know, and we really are just using a few rules that work most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So, and and that's pretty much it in terms of um, how so, you would frame an answer for that question. So, um, you know, the physiological mechanisms of oliguria, uh, and the the mnemonic that I'll have in the um in the in this page is RAM. So it's your renin angiotensin aldosterone system. It's ADH. And it's your mean arterial pressure less than your autoregulation zone of approximately 70 to 170 millimeters mercury. Mm-hmm. And then after that, what causes activation of renin? So that would be SIM. So that would be your sympathetic nervous uh, system stimulation uh, from activation of the baroreceptors. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you've got activation of your intrarenal baroreceptors and then also your macula densa as well, sensing um, flow and sodium. And then after that, when you've got activation of renin, you've got uh, release of angiotensin two, and the effects of angiotensin two are your SARS virus. So it includes sodium and water retention, increase in aldosterone, um, increase in renal arterial vasoconstriction, sympathetic nervous st- stimulation, and increase in vasoconstriction as well. That's so fantastic. You've got a great framework, lots of mnemonics to help. And you know this is a pretty complex topic, but imagine you can get a pass answer just with the exceptional frameworks and mnemonics. And then as you read more into it, hopefully you can get more understanding as well as, you know, remembering. Yeah, just, these. And then the story that goes with it is that, uh, so there's a RAM in a simulation farm, in a sim farm, yep. um, which is actually being used to help um, fight COVID yep. or the SARS virus. And the way, and what's happening in this, uh, in these farms, so no, no sheep are being harmed, but what they do is they use bacteria to produce the um, spike protein. Mm. Um, that the that the virus that the that the COVID virus has, yep. and then the sheep actually produces antibodies uh, to this spike protein, and they are actually using these antibodies mm-hmm. as part of the rapid antigen testing uh, tests uh, kits that we have. That's so, actually great. You know, yeah. initially I thought that you were just making up a story, but this is actually a real story. <laughs> it's actually a real story. That's right. So. <laughs> That's fantastic. 
So knowing the story will actually help you answer this question. Yeah. And it's an interesting story that is real though. If you want to remember stuff, make a stupid story. That's ridiculous. Not real. And that still helps you, but this is one better than that, Stan. Thank you very much. So I think that's it for fantastic. Thanks so much, Stan. That was a, made a complex topic, much more manageable. Really appreciate it. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's coffee break for this week and please, yes, yeah, support us on our Patreon and share with anyone who might be interested and we'll see you again next time. Thanks a lot.